Welcome back to the Foreign Policy Profcast. My name is Mark Melton. I'm the managing editor of Providence. And today we are speaking with Rebecca Heinrichs of the Hudson Institute and a contributing editor to Providence. And today we're going to be talking about Ukraine and the situation there. And for listeners to know, since this is a quickly, a possibly quickly moving situation, we are recording on February 7th. So Rebecca, first, thanks for joining us on the Profcast. Oh, I'm happy to do it. Always. Thanks for having me, Mark. And like I said, we are going to be talking about Ukraine. And uh, so the first question, you know, Rebecca, is on today, February 7th, what is the current situation in Ukraine? Well, we've got um, more than 100,000 Russian troops uh, deployed all around Ukraine, not just in concentrated in one area, but sort of taking it on several sides. Um, we, uh, they are, they being Russia is, is, uh, deploying things that, um, look like they really are preparing for war, some logistical things like, uh, blood, um, extra blood that they would need for triage and supporting Russian casualties. Um, and so, you know, there's various movements depending on the day that looks like they are very, very earnest in their preparation for some kind of invasion that would take that would take on um, Russian casualties. The Russian, the Ukrainians um, are holding the line the best they can there. They are uh, preparing to defend the territorial integrity of Ukraine. This is not the same Ukrainian military that we saw in 2014. In 2014, it was much more disorganized. Um, it wasn't as, as unified on defending Ukraine, didn't have as much uh, clear identification as Ukrainians. It was a little bit more mixed. That's not the Ukrainian military we see today. They identify as Ukrainians. They are well-disciplined. I just recently had a briefing um, from somebody who, who knows the status of them up close and personal, and he indicated that they are highly disciplined. Um, they are prepared to defend Ukraine, but they are outgunned and outnumbered, so they, we know that they will not be able to militarily succeed against Russia. Um, but that is the that is the latest current... Um, facts that we have established. And then, of course, there's ongoing speculation and analysis about what might happen next. So why does Ukraine matter? Like, why should Americans be concerned with what happens there? Great question. Well, um, a couple of reasons, couple of sort of immediate reasons, and then sort of broader ones, obviously, the big I'll start with the broad, broad, broadly, Russia wants to undermine NATO. Now, this is NATO is, of course, the most successful political military alliance um, that we have had. And though the origins of NATO are, they've sort of changed their, we no longer have a Soviet Union, but we do have Russians with uh, um, similar goals, the Soviet Union, that they want to recover um, lost territory and peoples that they think that they erroneously lost the fall of the Soviet Union. And they want the current Russian government would like to recover those by force if necessary. And that includes some um, countries that are part of the NATO alliance. Um, be, so, of course, Ukraine is not, our listeners know that, uh, part of the, uh, the NATO alliance. But if, if Russia does invade some of these countries that are established, they are their own independent sovereign nations, um, it would trigger Article 5, um, which would mean that the United States would come to the defense if we are to abide by our security agreements and keep our word and our commitments, we would be at war with Russia. Now, we still have an interest. I've been one of these people saying, listen, we, we, Russia, NATO should be a, a made stronger, a stronger alliance, and we can adapt it. We can, we can adapt it to meet the needs we have today. 
um, that are different than than we had at uh, the time of the Soviet Union or with purpose right after the Soviet Union. But it's still in our interest to have a peaceful European continent. And so the the danger for Americans is that you have Russia that invades Ukraine. You directly have um, NATO allies at risk. Obviously, that causes um, serious financial pain to the American family, just in terms of the trade that we have with the European continent. If you have larger war um, in Europe with involving our British allies, um, our French allies, um, and other, obviously, the Poles and other Central European, Eastern European countries and other Western European countries, hopefully Germany, um, although Germany is sort of a prickly uh, pair right now on this issue. But you have a serious financial cost, you have um, blood and treasure invested. And and even if it just stays Ukraine, um, which nobody really believes, I think the idea is they invade Ukraine, and then they threaten NATO more directly, um, you, you're going to see a country that wants to be part of the West, that wants to be part of, um, wants to adopt the principles of self-governance that the United States upholds as the model, and we'll see a, tr- a human tragedy. Um, something, you know, Americans, even if they wanted out of Afghanistan, we talked about this, they didn't like what they saw on their TVs when they saw the, the human tragedy that happened. And, and we are supposed to be a, a country that defends the principles of sovereign, uh, the sovereignty of nations and territorial integrity and of self-determination of democratic governance. And, um, and, and so the, the estimates now from the U.S. government, we could see tens of thousands of Ukrainian deaths, civilian casualties, and a million, up towards to a million um, refugees leaving Ukraine and flooding into NATO ally Poland. Um, so financial cost, human tragedy. And then I know the next question I hope you're going to ask me is what this means lar- more largely about um, the Russia-China problem, because you know, the United States, these problems don't just sort of stay localized. They metastasize, they grow. And if Russia thinks that it can take a little, it'll just continue to take. And we've got a much bigger problem in our hands, both with Russia um, and as Russia continues to collaborate increasingly with our number one adversary, which is the Chinese Communist Party. Right. Yeah. And um, I wrote a piece last week that kind of touched upon you know, Russia and China getting closer together. And to me, especially if the Belt and Road Initiative is supposed to, in addition to the sea lanes, they're opening up rail lines and other physical links through the Eurasian continent that gaining the, Russia gaining control of the second largest country in Europe by landmass would not, to me, would not help U.S. rivalry with China. No, that's exactly right. You're exactly right. And then I would just point out too, you know, there is this desire among um, many uh, self-identifying realists in the foreign policy kind of analysis world or scholarship world say, listen, we need to make sure that we keep Russia and China apart because that's like nightmare scenario when you have two adversary nations with um, serious militaries and serious uh, nuclear arsenals um, ganging up on the United States and the West. And so we need to continue to do what we can to keep them apart. Unfortunately, I think that ship has sailed. I think now we've seen, especially here at the Olympic Games, the statement, the joint statement by Xi Jinping and uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin, where they they have announced they do have this strategic partnership. I would actually go as far as saying it is a de facto uh, alliance. They China has been collaborating with the Russians in their massive strategic military exercises. Um, when the United States withdrew from the INF Treaty, because the Russians were cheating on it, the Chinese objected 
um, pretty, pretty uh, forcefully. Um, of course, China is, arsenal, more than 90% of their missiles would have violated the INF treaty, but they wanted the United States to stay party to that um, and defended the Russian, the Russian case, which of course was, was not true. Um, Xi Jinping has defended Russia's claims against NATO and Ukraine. And, and Russia has returned the favor by defending Xi Jinping's erroneous claims against democratic Taiwan. So you see these increasing collaborations between these two countries. And, and so it, you know, this, I keep seeing these, you know, Biden officials publicly urging China to convince Russia not to invade Ukraine. And I think it's, you know, maybe they, they know that what they're saying doesn't make any sense, but they're saying it anyway for some sort of diplomatic purpose that I'm not aware of. But, but that is, that is nonsense. I mean, China seems to me has made the calculation that it is in their interest for Russia to create this very highly destabilized environment on the European continent, keep the United States distracted over there with a serious problem. Um, and, um, and then who knows, you know, what, what Xi Jinping is, is planning and devising for what's going to happen in the, in the Pacific. And we could go on down this. My colleagues at Hudson have written extensively now about Russia and Chinese increasing collaboration with the Iranians and their interests in the Middle East. Um, and then even arms sales and technology transfers to, to North Korea. And, and this is how major wars happen. It's a, it's, a, it's a herring thing for those familiar with history, which is why it's strongly in our interest to have clear eyes about this, work with our allies and partners to, to deter both adversaries and lean on our allies when they can do things that they can do well so that we can focus on the high-end threats, which, you know, I mean, I think both obviously Europe and, and the Indo-Pacific are deeply important but we got to make sure that China does not take Taiwan. And so we need to be majorly focusing our military posture uh, to deter China from thinking it would make sense for them to, to launch a full-scale invasion and take Taiwan by force. I'll be sure to post in the show notes links to these articles that you're mentioning um, and some others that we've posted about Ukraine. So my next question here is... You know, how has the U.S. responded to the crisis so far? Like we've given a lot of arms along with Britain to Ukraine, and uh, there's talk about putting sanctions on Russia. We've also been sending troops to uh, Eastern Europe. So uh, kind of three questions there. One, what are these troops doing? Uh, two, like how else are we responding to the crisis? And uh, what type of sanctions might we put on Russia and what effect would that have? Sure. So just a few things. I mean, honestly, the Biden administration has done some things very well, given the current circumstances. I mean, I can spend 30 minutes talking about all the things they did poorly that got us in this fix or contributed to it. Obviously, ultimately, I always clarify that as much as I complain about U.S. policy when when things like this happen and, and seem to be a big mess, obviously, ultimately, both strategically and morally, the blame rests with the adversary that's planning on acting aggressively against the sovereign nation. So that the, the ultimate blame goes with Russia and, and his calculations. Um, but, 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 you know, at the UN, the, listen, I mean, the, the, our UN ambassador I, did, did fine. Her statements uh, at the UN about exposing what Russia is doing, um, making clear that they are the aggressors, it's not Ukraine. 
everything she said, I think would be things that Nikki Haley would have said with a, you know, very different style and delivery, but, but it was sound. I mean, of course the challenge is both Russia and China have vetoes at the UN Security Council. And so it's not going to help us there, but, but it was, it was a nice explanation in that international body to explain what was going on. Um, The Biden administration has threatened sanctions, um, very heavy sanctions. If, if Russia does invade, that's about all they can, they can do because, President Biden has made clear, I think painfully clear, that we're not going to be sending more troops to Ukraine. It's been very under-discussed in cable news, but we already have some special forces in Ukraine helping with training, very small number of forces. That's in the open open reporting, but it's gotten very little attention. Um, but there, we've got some U.S. forces in there trying to help train some Ukrainians. That's all that's been publicly, publicly reported. Um, and we've sent some lethal aid. Uh, that 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 was really happening during the Trump administration. The javelin; those are the the tank busters. Um, and then, very delayed, very 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 delayed, late in the game, the Biden administration finally agreed to to release more of the aid that the Ukrainians want. That's just to sort of that's just to make the Ukrainians exact a high cost on the Russians for invading. But again, it's not going to 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 ultimately land uh, it, result in a military defeat because they're outgunned and outmanned. But, but the idea is to, to exact a high cost on the Russians so that they don't do greater damage than they might ultimately be willing to do. And, um, and then the threat of sanctions is, is what the Biden administration is trying. The problem is they've got to be willing to sanction Germany if Germany goes forward with Nord Stream 2. Russia believes that the costs, seems to me, that Russia has made a calculation that once the Biden administration relaxed sanctions on Nord Stream 2, that that is what gave Russia the big indicator that there would not be heavy diplomatic cost such that it wouldn't be worth it to them to launch an invasion because the United States wouldn't be willing to um, to punish Germany. And Germany obviously wasn't going to be willing to stop the Russians from invading Ukraine. In fact, the Germans have been pitiful um, in their response to Russia's uh, threats of aggression against Ukraine, saying that they would send some helmets to the Ukrainians. I thought it was a parody and a joke when I saw it at first. Evidently, it was serious. So um, that's where we are. And then, then we're, we're sending some troops to Eastern Europe. Those are small, just a thousand. I think it was like a thousand. Maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong. I think three thousand. And then, and then there's a the, there's a the possibility of sending more NATO troops. But all of NATO has to it has to be a consensus decision. And if Germany doesn't doesn't green light it, then Germany again is the weakest link in the NATO alliance when it comes to actually holding the line. On, um, on the most vulnerable front of the alliance, which is Poland, the Balts, Romania, you know, it's sort of that Black Sea area. So that's where we are. And um, it's really going to be ultimately up to, up to Putin to decide if, uh, if, it's, if it's worth the cost n- reading sort of the, the geopolitical landscape of where all the players are, um, of whether or not, you know, he's going to do it and to what degree he's actually going to invade. And there have been different reports of what the U.S. might give to Russia to make them stop. There's been talk about allowing inspections of our missile defense system in Poland to make certain there aren't cruise missiles there that they're worried about. I'm not sure what we would get in return if we would get to inspect stuff in Russia. And then also people have talked about not allowing Ukraine to ever join NATO in the future. So... One, do you think any of these concessions would make Vladimir Putin happy and make him behave better? 
or do you think that any of these would end up backfiring on the U.S.? Oh, so this is just, so this report leaked. I mean, this is as predictable as, I mean, man, you know, the Biden people, they're offering, so let's let's get this straight. So what, what they're essentially offering is sort of a mini INF treaty all over again. The Russians were violating the INF Treaty. These are ground launch systems of intermediate range. They can be nuclear or conventional. Both were prohibited. The Russians were violating the treaty. The Obama administration recognized it, said it, acknowledged it, tried to get the Russians to comply with the treaty, stop deploying these systems that violated the treaty. The Russians wouldn't do it. This is all the way back in 2014. So the Trump administration tries to get, compel them to abide. They wouldn't. So they said, OK, we're going to withdraw from a treaty. We're the only ones in the whole world abiding by this treaty. The Russians aren't, Chinese are not party to it. Nobody's doing it. So, and if we want to deter China and the Indo-Pacific, we, we might need these weapon systems. Why are we party to a treaty that's restricting us and nobody else? So we withdraw. Now, the Russians have never admitted that they were cheating. In fact, they still would be cheating if we were still party to that treaty. So for the Biden administration to even offer a deal for to, to not deploy ground launch systems in an area that is directly threatened by Russia is simply diplomatic, strategic malpractice. I don't know what else to call it. It's just, it's just embarrassing. I mean, I mean, and 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 to and to offer that they can come check out these Polish sites. They're purely defensive systems there. To actually outfit them to put tomahawk weapons in there would would be a whole re rejigging of the system. And um and so we have they, it's purely defensive. They're purely defensive sites in Romania. And not only would I not let a Russian st step foot on, on either of these countries' uh, soil, let alone I mean, while they have 100 plus thousand troops amassed on a sovereign nation threatening to invade, I wouldn't let them on our missile defense sites. Furthermore, I actually suggest we start planning on deploying these systems. Not only should we not promise not to deploy them. I think we should be saying we are happy to deploy them if these countries want them. And that's because they're directly threatened. And if Russia doesn't want to be threatened by ground launch cruise missiles, they need to stop threatening to invade sovereign nations. Now, I think your second question was on uh, what we would get from it. So I guess the deal now, again, this is just, it's a leaked document. It was sort of an initial sort of stab at what, a, what, what, what this agreement would look like, but there'd be some mutual things that the Russians would have to do with their systems as well. But again, I, I would say I'm not interested in having any kinds of talks about anything while you are amassing troops and threatening a sovereign nation. So, you know, and, and furthermore, I think, you know, we, we totally have the right and the Russians and the Poles and anybody else has the right to deploy the kinds of systems that they need to defend the, the territorial integrity of their country and the safety and security of their people. Um, that's a long answer, but it, it makes me so frustrated that this is something that they're offering while we know that the Russians were uh, in violation and continue to lie and, and obscure the truth about that issue. Again, speaking from February 7th, it's looking like none of these offers have really moved uh, the Russians to abandon their plans or uh, posturing to take Ukraine. No, oh, definitely not. No, I, I mean, I think that the Russians, the Russians want, they wanted to take a big chunk off of Ukraine and that that's what they want and they and they're they're spoiling for a fight and if it was diplomacy i mean the rush the obama administration tried hard remember the russia reset if if there was if there were concessions diplomatic concessions that could have been made to get russia to act like a responsible nation and stop threatening to invade countries we would have figured that out 
with an administration that was desperate to make it so, and it didn't work. The Trump administration, though they had much tougher policies on Russia, Donald Trump was always looking for an opportunity to cooperate with Vladimir Putin, and it never materialized because that the Russians simply wouldn't play ball. And so now here we are, if it, if it was going to be something as easy as let's swap information on this particular category of weapon systems, that could have been, that could have solved the problem. The Russians want these former, you know, these former chunks of territory that currently belong in sovereign nations that used to be part of the Soviet Union. That's what they want. And so they're looking to see to what degree they can get that and at what cost. And, and they're going to continue to push until they find solid um, pushback where they can conclude that it's not going to be worth it. And that's just the way this is going to go. <laughs> and so this idea, I mean, you can't, you cannot, I've been on the record. I've said this too. I'm not in favor of expanding NATO right now at this time. I think that we need to be strengthening the NATO alliance. We, we've got some major problems in it and expanding it whenever it's already struggling on the political side of things and on military commitments with some member alliances, members in the alliance, I'm not in favor of expanding it. I think that that would be foolish when the United States has two major powers that we need to deter in addition to rogue state actors. But I am 100% opposed to in principle and categorically closing the door to any expansion ever. That is not even in our place and position to make that promise. These are sovereign countries and dynamics can change and there might be a time in the future in which it makes sense. So I think that that's just, it's a non-starter and it should be a non-starter. Well, Rebecca, I know that we're short on time and I want to make certain that we can get this podcast out there quickly so that listeners can listen to it while, you know, before Russia invades Ukraine, if that ends up being what happens. But Rebecca, thanks for joining us on the podcast. If, if I can say just one more thing, Mark, if that's okay. Oh, go ahead. There was this really great well-sourced report by the Financial Times, which indicated um, that there was um, U.S. officials on Capitol Hill briefing members that essentially they believe that Russia might actually test strategic systems. So these are nuclear-capable systems of intermediate, of, inter of ICBM range, of, of, of intercontinental range that can reach the United States, that they might test these weapon systems while, so concurrently, while they are invading Ukraine. They did something similar in the past when they invaded uh, uh, Ukraine in 2014. This would be, this is so highly provocative. And, and supposedly I heard from a credible source that this would be a, if they, do, if they go forward with it, the largest military exercise in decades from the Russians. So the, the, they are, Ukraine is the pretext, but they're, they're, they're for undermining the U.S.-led order in Europe and in cooperating with China to make sure that China gets what it wants in the Pacific um, and, and beyond. And so we really are, I think the stakes are so incredibly high and we just need strong leadership, smart statecraft. I'm hopeful that our leaders will come through with it in collaboration with our NATO allies um, and, that, and that this administration will, will start listening, especially to the Poles, the Romanians, those on the Black Sea, who are who are really under the shadow of of the Russians and um, hoping that this meeting with the the German officials in in Washington will go well and that Germany will understand that it needs to be a um, robust and equal participant of the most successful political military alliance the United States has ever had and that's NATO. Rebecca, thanks for joining us on the Profcast. Thanks, Mark. 